0: Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Jonah, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Zach, why are we not finishing chapter 3? And uh, the answer to that is we are going to finish chapter 3, but Jeff and his wife decided selfishly to go ahead and have the baby come early, and so I found out at one in the morning on a Saturday that I would have to uh, preach, and uh, thought it would be better to do this text just because I'd already started the prep work on this. And so uh, they, uh, they had a little baby boy, mama and baby are healthy, and we are going to get to chapter three, so we're going to do that next week. We're not, uh, we don't just cut parts out of the Bible, we don't like, we deal with them, we just sometimes have to deal with them out of order. Now... If that stresses you out, let me remind you, we did Romans before Jonah, okay? So the chronology is not always as important. So we will, uh, next week, uh, assuming everybody is doing well, uh, we will be in Jonah 3, but today we're going to be in uh, Jonah 4, 1 through 4. And so if you don't like it, because I haven't had much time to prep, the only person you can be mad at is Jeff, okay? So keep that in mind as we get into this text. Now... We have on staff four guys right now, and then assuming that Jared gets through the, uh, the process, a pastoral resident, and we all have different fears, and with these fears, we try to stay away from them, okay? That's what happens when you are afraid of something. So Tim, for example, our worship leader, is terrified of ants, okay? You might not know that about Tim. Not like the wife of an uncle, although that would be a hilarious fear. You just meet some woman, you're like, she doesn't have a niece or nephew, does she? But that's not what it is for him. One time when he was a kid, he was playing paintball. And he took a knee in a big ant pile and didn't notice it. And so he got covered with ants and bit all up. And so to this day, if you even talk to him about ants swarming your body, he starts getting weird, okay? So Tim is afraid of ants, and so he tries to stay away from those. Jeff is terrified of lizards. I've never met someone in my life terrified of lizards, but his brother used to taunt him with lizards when he was a little kid. And so today, he is terrified of lizards. I sent him a video of a Komodo dragon eating a monkey this weekend just to encourage his heart, but he's terrified of lizards, and he's part Japanese, so Godzilla for him is like doubly terrifying, okay? So he just, he doesn't do lizards, he doesn't like it, he tries to stay away from them, okay? Carl, I assume, is afraid of being cool, because (laughs) that's what he stays away from. He plays with Rubik's Cubes, he plays the French horn, etc. So he tries to stay away from that. We all try to stay away from our fears. I am basically afraid of everything else, okay? So just close your eyes and point to something, and I assume the building will collapse, or we'll get in a car wreck, or the plane will crash, or whatever it might be. So we all have these different fears, and instead of confronting them, instead of giving them to Jesus, we have a tendency to run, and we're seeing that specifically today with Jonah. Jonah's greatest fear is going to come true and we're going to see that here, okay? Just to catch you up from chapter 3, Jonah finally goes to Nineveh after being disobedient and he tells them God's going to destroy them and they repent and so God doesn't destroy them. Jeff will talk more about that next week, but that's really the summary of chapter 3 and so here we see Jonah's greatest fear come true. We see Jonah being mad that God has given mercy to his enemies, That's Jonah's greatest fear, that God would be a merciful God and would give mercy to Jonah's enemies. So with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll get into verse one. Almighty God, we thank you that you're good and that you're loving, that you're gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, all the things that this text says that you are. And I just pray for grace. I pray that this text would convict us, but then you would also heal us. I pray that your word would cut us and bind us up, That your word would uh, offend us and then transform us. We thank you for even this little book of Jonah, this little prophetic book in the Old Testament. We thank you the way that it points to the gospel even to today. So, would you bless the preaching of your word in Christ's name? Amen. Let's do verse 1 and 2a together. Here's what it says But it, it being God's mercy to Nineveh, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Okay, let me give you five things I want you to see from verses one and the first part of two, okay? First of all, this is the first time in the entire book of Jonah that we've been told why Jonah ran away. Did you notice that? You might have not noticed that because you heard the Jonah story growing up. But if you're an original reader of Jonah, this is the first time it actually says, why Jonah rebelled. In chapter one, we see him rebel. In chapter two, we see him pray. In chapter three, we see him go to Nineveh. But the text has never told us why. Jonah's four chapters, and it's not until chapter four where the text will explicitly tell you why Jonah is running from God and why Jonah is being disobedient. And here he finally gives the reason. Jonah doesn't want God to be merciful to Jonah's enemies. That's why he's been running, okay? Second thing I want you to notice in the text is how furious Jonah is. He hates this. There are five things in the text that tell you how much he hates it, okay? It says that he's displeased, that he's exceedingly angry. says that he was angry. In his prayer, he basically says, God, I told you this would happen. You're always doing this. You're always going around giving people mercy. This is why we can't have nice things, God. This is just who you are. And then he also explains why he rebelled originally. Jonah is not merely just unhappy. He despises this. He hate, th- There are things I don't like, and there are things that I hate. Okay? I don't like parking far away from the mall. I don't like when my socks get wet when it's raining. But then there are things that I hate, that I despise. Right? Clowns, mayonnaise, CrossFit, People who take off their shoes on a public airplane, these kind of things. And Jonah despises this. He hates this. He's really angry at God for this. Okay? Third thing I want you to notice Jonah is still not repentant in his heart. There have been several places throughout the book of Jonah where you think, you know what? I think Jonah's finally gonna repent. But he doesn't. He is thrown overboard, but he doesn't really repent. In the belly of the fish, he repents temporarily. He goes to Nineveh because he doesn't want to get eaten by a fish again, which is a a good motivation, but not the best motivation. And here we see that he's still angry. We see that he still does not want to obey God. He does not want to love God. He does not want to do what he's supposed to do from the heart. Okay? From the heart. Fourth thing I want you to see. Here we get another prayer from Jonah. The first time we really see Jonah pray is in chapter 2, and he's praying for God to give him mercy. He should have died in the sea. But instead, God gives him mercy, and so Jonah offers up a prayer. And here we get to see another prayer of Jonah, but this one is bitter. This is a complaint. This is a frustration, okay? And then the fifth thing I want you to see, and this one's huge. Notice that Jonah is accusing God of wrongdoing. Literally in Hebrew, look in the text here where it says, in your text, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Here's what it says literally in Hebrew. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil, okay? Jonah is accusing God of wrongdoing. That's what he's doing. He's accusing God of sinning against him. That's what's happening. So let me ask you this question. Where are you accusing God of wrongdoing? Where do you think that God has given you the short end of the stick? Where do you think that God has not been kind in the hand that he has dealt you? Where do you think that you would make a better God than God? That's what Jonah's wrestling with. Listen to me. God has never wronged you. God has never sinned against you. He has ordained bad things. You will go through bad things, but he has never sinned against you. He has never wronged you. Let me remind you, God owes sinful humanity nothing. This is why I hate the idea of entitlement. Here's what God owes us, eternal damnation. Everything else is a gift, okay? The only thing God gives us, if we're being fair, is eternal conscious punishment. Everything beyond that is a gift from God. God. Every breath you take, every heartbeat, every good meal you have, every time you see a child laugh, the fact that you live in a nice home, whatever it is, everything else other than damnation is grace. Everything else is God's mercy and his, God's love. Additionally, you don't see how God uses your suffering for a good purpose. I'm reminded of this every time I have to take my kids to get a shot, okay? I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and they do not like getting shots, And every time we have to go get a shot, we have to hold that child down while we give them the shot. Now, by we, I mean the nurse or doctor. I don't do that personally. I don't want to throw up. That freaks me out. But I hold them down, okay? And they have to give them the shot. Now, every time the doctor or the nurse is giving them a shot, their eyes are looking at me with a sense of betrayal. You've wronged me. How could you do this? But here's the thing. They're not as smart as me, okay? That's not a humble brag. I'm smarter than a three-year-old. They don't understand that I have to put them through this little bit of pain to keep them from getting polio or smallpox or something like that. In the same way, God does ordain suffering. He does ordain that we go through these difficult things, but he has not wronged you because you're not as smart as God. You don't see why he's doing what he is doing. God has never wronged you. It is not okay to be angry with God thinking that you're justified, and that's what Jonah's doing. Let me say it stronger. Nobody has wronged you more than you. Nobody has made bad decisions that hurt you more than you. Nobody has lied to you or messed up your life more than you. You are not the solution. God is the solution. You and I are the problem. You see, Jonah switches this. Jonah's saying, my way should be right. You should not have given mercy to these people even though they repented. How dare you, God? As Carl said a few weeks ago, he says to God, you're in my chair, get off my throne. And that's what we have a tendency to do. So let this text hit us, let this text convict us. Where are you, like Jonah, complaining to God? Because you think that you're justified and God has wronged you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God has never sinned against you. He will put you through difficult things. But remember, he owes you nothing and he only puts you through suffering for your good if you're a Christian. Let's look at verse 2, second part of verse 2, 2b. Here's the reason that Jonah will give For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here's what Jonah's saying I knew you would do this. You're always going around giving people mercy and being kind. How dare you? Jonah is not mad at this point at Nineveh, he's mad at God for being kind. Do you see the irony here? When Jonah was going to die, God gave Jonah mercy, even though Jonah was being disobedient. And now when God gives Nineveh mercy because they repent, Jonah is mad at God for doing what God already did with Jonah. Do you see? Do you see the great irony in this text? He's mad at God for who God is, okay? And notice that he bases Nineveh's salvation, he bases it on God's character. Let me say it this way. Why is Nineveh not destroyed? God promised that 40 days and Nineveh would be overturned. Why is Nineveh not destroyed? There's a bunch of different ways you can answer that question. Maybe you say, because they're actually good people. Well, that's Pelagianism. That's not Christian, and that's not why. Maybe you say that the reason God doesn't destroy Nineveh is because God doesn't really exist. That's atheism. That's not biblical, and that's not the reason why. Maybe you say Nineveh's not destroyed because the Ninevites did the best they could. They did the best they could in conjuring up repentance, and so God forgave them. That's semi-Pelagianism. That's not biblical. Maybe God saves Nineveh because God just saves everyone regardless of whether or not they repent. That's universalism. That's not biblical, and that's not why Nineveh was saved. Maybe God saves Nineveh because God foreknew the Ninevites would freely choose to repent. That's Arminianism. That's not historic Protestant Christianity, and that's not the reason why. Do you know why God forgives Nineveh? Because God is merciful. God is the one who gives mercy based on his sovereign good pleasure. That's Calvinism. That's historic Protestant Christianity. The reason God forgives Nineveh is not because of something in Nineveh. It's because of something in God. Okay? Now, listen to what I'm about to say, because if you understand what I'm about to say, this biblical truth will change your life. So please hear this God's love for you is not based on something in you, it's based on something in God. That's why His love for you does not change. He is unchanging. We have a tendency to think that God's love for us is based upon us. When I'm having a really great day, I share my faith, I read the Bible, I'm fearing, feeling spiritual. God loves me more. And on days where I'm sinning and I'm struggling and I'm not doing well, we think that God loves us less. If you understand that God's love for you is not based on you, it's based on God, it frees you from that hamster wheel of performance. It frees you from treating God as one who, he loves me, he loves me not, as you're like plucking uh, petals off of a flower, okay? God's love for you is not based on you. It is based on God. That's why it doesn't change. You don't give God good days and bad days. He's always doing just fine. God's love for you cannot be based on your sinful past because he loved you before you had one. His love for you cannot be based on where you struggle presently. His love for you is not based on whether or not you will mess up in the future. God's love for you is unchanging because God is unchanging. Do you see that? It's objective if you're a Christian, God has set His love on you and you cannot screw it up. Okay? You don't get to tell God who He can and can't love. He gets to choose who He wants to love and once He's in, He's in. That will free you from the legalism, from trying to earn God's love. God is just loving. God is the only being in the universe who can actually love unconditionally. Do you know why? Because He doesn't need anything from us. We like to think that our love's unconditional. I like to think that my love for my sweet wife is unconditional. But guess what? If she were to cheat on me every day, my love would change. Our love as humans is limited because we're limited. Our love is conditional because we're conditional. God is the only being in the universe who can just love you because he doesn't need anything from you. He's just free to love you. Even though I mess up, yep. Even though I'm still struggling with some habitual sin, yep. God's love is based on God, not on you. Notice that Jonah's mad, not just because God gave Nineveh grace, but because that's the kind of God that he is. He just so happens to be the kind of God who's super, super loving and merciful. Okay? Now let's look again. Look at the second part here of verse 2. Here it's going to list six attributes of God. Okay? It's going to say that he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. And now as I say this, I remember there are five. Five attributes, not six. Remember, I only got a few hours of preparation. If that's as bad as it goes, there you go, okay? Notice these different attributes of God. Now, let's do a little theology here. These are not really different things with God, okay? Let's, let's do a little theology. Let's do some theology proper and talk about doctrine of God. In historic classic Christianity, God is simple. Now, let me explain what I mean, because that's very easy to to misunderstand. God is simple. That doesn't mean that God is easy to understand. That's not what we mean by simple. It doesn't mean that God is like simple-minded. That's not what we mean by simple. What we mean is that God is not made up of parts. He's not composite. We are made up of parts. My hands are different than my feet. My legs are different than my mind. My soul is different than my elbow. I'm made up of a bunch of parts, and I change one day I'm happy, one day I'm sad, okay? When we say that God is simple, what we mean is that God is just God. He's just God. He's not made up of parts. It's not like he's 30% love and 14% wrath or something like that. God is just God. And when we talk about these different attributes, that's so that we can better understand him. Let me give you an example of, uh, that, that, that's analogous to this. If you have white light, so let's just say you have light just a white light bulb, uh, you know, some sort of uh, light, and you shine it, it just produces white light. But if you take a prism and you shine that light through the prism, what it does is it breaks apart that light so that you can see different colors. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, whatever it is, okay? That's kind of like when the Bible talks about God's attributes. God is kind of like that white light. He's just God. He's not made up of different parts. But what the Bible does is the Bible acts as a prism so that we can better see things about God so that we can at least partially try to understand a being who is holy, other, who is infinite. And so notice that these things are not that different, really. These things are not really different for God. God is just God, and that God happens to be loving and gracious and merciful and slow to anger, etc., Okay? But the Bible breaks these things apart so that we can understand. So let's uh, let's go through a few of these. First of all, what is the difference between grace and mercy? Notice that God is gracious and merciful. Grace is where you get something you don't deserve. Mercy is where you don't get what you do deserve. Notice that God is both. He gives us salvation which we do not deserve. But he also doesn't give us what we do deserve, which is wrath. Christ takes the wrath from God so that we do not have to experience that wrath. Notice that. He's both gracious and merciful. He gives us eternal life, and he doesn't give us the condemnation that we deserve for those who know Christ. Next, where the text says that he is slow to anger, literally, in Hebrew it says, he is long of nostrils, long of nostrils, okay? That's a Hebrew idiom. What it's saying is that God has a long nose. Now, let me be clear, God doesn't have any nose. This is a metaphor, he doesn't look like Pinocchio. The idea is that God's fuse is not short. God has a long fuse. You know how you get mad and your nostrils flare up? It takes a long time to do that for God, that's the idea. It takes a long time to really get up in his face because he is slow and merciful and loving and gracious. That's the idea, that God is slow to anger. And here you have at the end of verse 2 one of the most common descriptions of God in the Bible. Okay? Let me show you a few places where this occur elsewhere, or this occurs elsewhere. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Numbers 14, 18. Listen to this. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Let me pause real quick. That doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you now get judged for your parents' sin. We have a blog called, Is Generational Sin a Real Thing? I encourage you to read. The short answer is when you become a Christian, there's no curse for you. This punishment being handed down to your kids assumes they keep doing the stuff you're doing. Okay, But more on that another time. Psalm 8615. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 145, eight through nine, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Joel two thirteen, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So here's my question for you. Do you see God this way? Do you see God as overwhelmingly gracious, overwhelmingly patient, overwhelmingly kind? Or do you see him as some sort of Catholic nun up in the sky with her ruler, ready to slap your knuckles when you make a mistake? God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's not like us. I'm not slow to anger. I don't do patience. I don't even think that's really a fruit of the Spirit for me. I like the other ones. Love, joy, peace, something, self-control. But I just ignore that one. When you punch, I punch. You say something mean, I say something mean. That's not how God is. God is Gracious. It takes a long time to offend Him. It takes a long time to uh, make Him upset. You need to see God this way. This is the foundation of everything else, is seeing God the right way. Do you see our Trinitarian God as being this kind and gracious? Or do you have a tendency to think that you're just an annoyance to Him? That you just... He, he's, he'll save you because He has to, because He promised He would, but basically He's always upset with you. No, no, no. If you're a Christian... You are in Christ, and God never sees you without his Jesus glasses on, and you are seen as perfect and as righteous. Let's look at verse 3. Now the text is going to take a real awkward, dramatic turn. Therefore now, as Jonah prays, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Here you get emotional Jonah. Here you get emo Jonah. Here you get goth Jonah. God, you're so merciful, I would just rather die. I would have just rather you kill me than live in a world where you're this merciful. That's what Jonah's saying. It's awkward. It's dramatic. Okay? I'll tell you a little story. So I, uh, when I was in college, there was a sub shop that I really enjoyed eating at. Okay? I won't give you the name. It's not Subway. Okay? Subway's motto is eat fresh because they know their food isn't. And they're psychologically trying to preempt you thinking that. We say, if we put eat fresh in our motto, when they say, this isn't fresh, they'll think, no, I have to be wrong. It's the motto, eat fresh. So it's not Subway. It's this other restaurant that I would go to to get a sub, okay? And it's one of those places where they would cut the meat in front of you. So I go to get my sub, and I'm busy. I've got a lot of things to do that day. And the guy starts cutting the meat in front of me on that big spinning razor thing, and he goes like that, and he cut his hand, okay? And he opens it, and there's blood. And I won't give you more details than that. Now, that was not what I was expecting, okay? I ordered turkey and ham, not turkey and hand. You know, I don't know if he misheard me or what it was, but it put me in an awkward social situation because on the one hand, I need my sandwich, but on the other hand, he's injured. So I'm having to try to figure out how do I say to him, hey, man, are you okay? And also say to him, can I get a sandwich without blood on it? Right? Right? So he's put me in this awkward kind of dramatic spot. He goes in the back, another worker comes out and very obviously cleans all the stuff. He's like, I'm so sorry. So he takes apart the whole machine, cleans it, wipes off the counter, makes sure that I know that uh, everything is sanitized and then he makes me my sandwich. And then he goes, I have to take this guy to the hospital. And so they leave, I now have my sandwich and I'm the only one in the restaurant and they lock the door. They leave and lock the door, okay? I don't know if someone's in the back, I didn't see anybody, so I'm just sitting there now, kind of not really hungry after that experience, and I've got my sub, and I'm sitting in this darkened, you know, sub place, and the door's locked. So people are coming to the door, this is during lunchtime, and I'm just like looking at them, and they're like, they'll look at me and they'll ask if I can open the door, and I'm like, see it, okay? And then I unlocked the door and I left, that was the thing. It was dramatic, it was awkward, it was unexpected, that's how verse 3 hits. Okay, Jonah is saying, I am so upset with you, God, I want you to kill me. I want you to see a few things with this verse, okay? First of all, self-righteousness and legalism, like Jonah has, will always lead to despair. When you think that God's love for you is based upon your performance, you see, Jonah doesn't like that the Ninevites got mercy because he's a Jew. He's been busy crushing religion his whole life. When you rest in that, you will eventually hit rock bottom. If you think that you can earn God's love and his love for you is not based on him, but based on you, you will try and try and try and you will fall short and it will lead to despair. The people I know that live the most wickedly are not people that just live wickedly. They're people that grew up in really religious homes and who were taught legalism and then they go off the deep end. Legalism will lead to despair like it does to Jonah, okay? But I want you to see something else here that's interesting. We've said this several times. Jonah is an unfaithful prophet, but he's not a false prophet. Notice that Jonah does not take his own life. He is not willing to take his own life. He'll ask for God to kill him. Job does that in the book of Job. Elijah does that in 1 Kings 19. He asks for God to kill him because he's in such distress. But Jonah, even though he's a disobedient prophet, he's still a true prophet. He knows that he doesn't get to take his own life because that belongs to God. He is a creature, okay? Suicide is sin because we don't own us. It's my life, it's not your life. It's my body, it's not your body. God owns everything, and so though Jonah is in despair, he will not take his own life. He will ask God to kill him, but he will not take matters into his own hands. There are four guys that I know of in the Bible that commit suicide, and they're all bad guys, okay? One is Judas, who betrayed Christ. Another is a guy named Ahithophel, who betrayed King David. Another guy is Saul, who tried to kill David. And then there's a guy named Abimelech, who was a murderer, okay? You don't own you. God owns you. You don't get to harm yourself. You belong to God, okay? Notice that though Jonah is furious with God, he will pray this, but he will not take his own life. I say that to say this. If you are in despair like Jonah, if you struggle with deep depression or thoughts of suicide, come and chat with us. We would love to help you, we would love to encourage you. I resigned from my first pastorate due to thoughts of suicide. So I would love to be able to chat with you if uh, you need some encouragement, okay? Now, why is Jonah in verse three so upset, okay? It's because God has given mercy to Jonah's enemies. So let me ask you this question, let this convict us. What group do you hate? What group do you not want God to give mercy to even if they were to repent, that's where you and I are like Jonah. What group is it where, if they repented, you would not want to give them mercy? You don't want God to give them mercy, you just want God to judge them. Let me list some groups, and you tell me if this clicks anything, anything in your head. Would it be Muslims? You hate Muslims, you don't want God to give mercy to Muslims. Should they repent and trust Christ? Notice the Ninevites repent. Is it Nazis? Let me be clear Nazism is bad but if a Nazi repents, Christ's blood can cover even him? Is it atheists you don't want God to give mercy to an atheist who would repent? Is it a former spouse, someone in business who cheated you, racists, men, women, those who are white, those who are black, those who are rich, Democrats, Republicans, whatever it is, what group is it for you that you just don't want God to give mercy to, even if they repent? You just would hate to call that person brother or sister if they repented. That's where you and I, though Jonah looks ridiculous in his whining, that's where you and I do the exact same thing. That's where you and I do the exact same thing. When Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, he chooses the Samaritan intentionally, okay? Samaritans to Jews were the worst. A Samaritan is this half-breed Jew who is a heretic. That's why Jesus uses that in the example, It's like us telling the story today of the good Muslim who helps the Christian, or whatever it might be. It's meant to be shocking. Jesus intentionally chooses somebody from a people group that the Jews didn't like to push his point, okay? Which group, type of person, whatever it is, do you just not want God to give mercy to? You want vengeance, you want pain, you want judgment for them, but you don't want mercy for them, even if they should repent. That's a place where there's a brokenness in your heart and in my heart. Now look at verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now here's why I love this. This is a rhetorical question. This is a powerful rhetorical device that's being used here. Mockery, sarcasm, cynicism, those things in and of themselves are not unbiblical. God uses those. Jesus uses those. Paul uses those. Okay? Those are in the Bible. You can misuse them, but you can also use them in a righteous way. And here God is saying to Jonah, Are you kidding me? Are you really this upset? You're really this mad because people got mercy? He's using this rhetorical question to rebuke Jonah. Literally, in, uh, in Hebrew, it says, Rightly, does it burn to you? Because Jonah's that angry. It's like he's burning. I mentioned this in theological quipping a few weeks ago that Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, had a lifelong study with anxiety and depression. Okay? And one day, he was moping around, and so his wife, Katharina von Bora, put on her black funeral dress she put on her funeral garb, and she walked into his office, and he said, why are you dressed up in your funeral dress? And she said, because you're acting like God is dead, I figured I would join you for his funeral. And Luther got up and went back to work, okay? She's a feisty woman, that Catherine von Bora. She was a former nun before renouncing her vows of celibacy, and she was smuggled out of her convent in a fish barrel. Okay, feisty woman, here we go. What God is doing just by asking these questions is not merely asking a question. The purpose of a rhetorical question is to make a point. And God is showing Jonah how ridiculous he is. Now what's funny is later on in Jonah, uh, Jonah will actually answer this question. This plant will shade Jonah and the plant will die and Jonah will get really mad. And Jonah 4.9 says this. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. You see, bitter unrepentant Jonah throughout the book. There's a lot of times where you'll have a biblical story and the character will repent at the end. Here's what's interesting with Jonah. He never quite gets there. He's mad the whole way through. There's not this, and Jonah finally repented and hung out with the Ninevites. That doesn't happen, okay? So Jonah is uh, an example of what we should not be, okay? Not something that we should be. Now, what does this have to do with us today, okay? What does this have to do with us today? I've got two big applications for you, Okay. Here's the first application. We have to put to death an us versus them mentality with lost people. That has to be put to death. Not only are our enemies not flesh and blood. Did you know that by the way? You have no enemies as a Christian that wear skin. Our enemies are false doctrine and powers and principalities, demons. Those are our enemies. People that are lost are the mission. Those are just, as I call them, potential Christians. Okay. There is no enemies that are flesh and blood for you as a Christian. Where do we have an us versus them mentality? Because we have to put that to death. Listen, at a church like Parkway, where we are constantly talking about the ways that culture is drifting, my fear is that we would start to think that lost people are the enemy. Lost people are not the enemy. The devil's the enemy. Okay? So it's okay to critique positions. It's okay to critique culture. It's okay to critique other churches that are capitulating and becoming watered down and becoming squishy. All that's okay. What I don't want us to do is to start getting an us versus them mentality, which is exactly what Jews like Jonah had for the Ninevites. Notice that when Jesus is walking on earth, one of the things that is most often brought against him as a charge is that he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Let me say this in a more aggressive way. If people are not questioning your holiness because you're hanging out with so many lost people, you are not being like Jesus. You're not. I want to be like Jesus. Then hang out with who Jesus hung out with so that they can get saved. As I heard one guy say, if you're not going to give me an amen, then give me an ouch. Right? That we are called to, those are people we're called to save. They are the mission. That's not who we withdraw from, that's who we hang out with. We do not partake in their sin. But we do hang out, we don't avoid Nineveh. Let this convict you if you're someone who only hangs out with Christians. You only hang out with people in the church, you're whatever it might be, and you never are around lost people. That's a problem. That's not what Jesus does. Let me give you a few verses. Ephesians six twelve. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies are not people, they're demons. Luke 5, 30 through 32. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, you're a Jew. You don't hang out with Ninevites. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 1 Corinthians nine nineteen through 22. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. This is Paul speaking. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that, I, that by all means I might save some. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This text is saying hang out with lost people, hang out with sexually immoral lost people. You should have gay friends as a Christian, but you should not tolerate sin for somebody who is a Christian. We do the opposite in church. We, only, we, we withdraw from the world, but we tolerate when other Christians are walking in sin. John 17, 15, when Jesus prays, he doesn't pray that we should be taken out of the world. He says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Where do you have an us versus them mentality? With what group do you not want to be friends? Okay? Doesn't mean you agree with the lifestyle, doesn't mean you agree with the sin. We are to hate the sin and love the sinner. It's a cliche, but it's such a true cliche. That's what Jesus does after all. Now, here's the second one. Do you get jealous when God gives other people grace? Do you get jealous when God gives other people grace because they struggle with some sin you don't struggle with, okay? Let me say a few things here. If someone sins against me, they are the victimizer and I am the victim, on whom does the Bible put the onus to forgive? It puts it on me. Why? Because if I'm unwilling to forgive, that person can never do enough to prove to me that they're forgivable. Yes, they've done wrong. Yes, there should be justice. Yes. But I don't have to worry about that. God will worry about that. My job is to worry about forgiving. That's difficult. Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to be forgiven. Nineveh's an enemy of Israel, Nineveh's an enemy of Jonah. Jonah wants restitution, Jonah wants recompense, he wants Nineveh to hurt. He's been hurt, his people have been hurt by Nineveh, he wants vengeance, he wants them to suffer. Where do you not want to give other people grace? It's easy to forgive when someone tells you they're sorry. It's really hard to forgive when they keep doing it and they still think they're right and that's when you're called to forgive. You ever had this thought? So you hear about somebody that comes to faith on their deathbed, right? They're in the hospital, they're on their deathbed, and they come to faith in Christ. Do you ever think to yourself, that doesn't seem very fair. I spent my whole life doing Christian stuff, staying away from these fun sins, doing all these things, obeying Christ, and here this guy is, who trips in over the finish line on his deathbed, and now he gets grace as well. If you're thinking that thought, which I think many of us have had, I've had that thought, you forget that the same grace that saves them is the same one that saved you. You never added to it. All your obedience, all your faithfulness was only a response to God's grace, not because you've earned it. So with that in mind, let me end by reading something out of the New Testament that very much rings true as we see this in Jonah 4. It's a long passage, but pay attention to the words here because this is important. This is Matthew 21 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you still stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired, excuse me, I lost my spot there. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first last? Let's pray as those helping serve communion come forward to pass the elements out. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are great and confess that we in so many places in our lives are like Jonah. We think that you made dumb decisions. We don't like the way that you've handled things. There are people we don't want you to give mercy to. We, we want grace for us, but we don't want it for others. Would you help us? Would you use this text to convict us? Would you use this text to encourage us? We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. And most of all, we thank you for Christ, for sending one to live righteously on our behalf, to uh, take the punishment we deserve. We bless your name. It's for your glory that we pray. Amen.